Our scripture reading is from the gospel according to John chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness to the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. So grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So if you were with us last Sunday, it was the fourth Sunday in Advent, and Stephen was touching on the ministry of John the Baptist. And in particular, John the Baptist was sent by God as a witness to Jesus. And so everything he was about, you could say, was about pointing people to the Lord. Uh, So one of the things that really stuck with me from Stephen's sermon, uh, aside from the fact that he swallowed a fly at the outdoor service, I don't know if you were there, but mid-sermon, swallowed a fly. Anyway, what really stuck with me is when the Pharisees asked John who he was, he never answered the question. He said they really wanted to know his identity. They were pressing him on it over and over again. And that's primarily because some people seem to think he might be the Savior. So are you Elijah, they ask him. No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you the Messiah? No. Then who are you, they ask. And John just never says In fact, all he says is, I'm not the light. I'm not your Savior, but I came to bear witness to him. In other words, what matters is not the identity of John, but the identity of Jesus. Or maybe a better way to put it would be John's whole identity is wrapped up and rooted in the identity of Jesus. So what I want to do today is I want to look at that identity. Who is Jesus. Over the course of the past 2,000 years, there have been these enormous debates about that. And in particular, maybe the most important one is in the early 300s, pretty much the entire Christian church got embroiled in one specific argument. It was centered on something a guy named Arius was teaching. Arius was kind of a big-name pastor. A lot of people knew who he was. And you see, what he was saying is Jesus was a great human being. He was an amazing teacher. He was maybe even the 
best thing God ever created. And yet, he wasn't God. And so Arius even had this famous saying that encapsulated his teaching. He would say, there was once when he was not. Meaning there was a time when Jesus did not exist. Which is saying at a particular point he was created. He is not the creator. And since God is the creator, then Jesus can't be God. So believe it or not, this was starting to gain a lot of traction. A lot of people were starting to believe it. And so what happened is in 325, the church held this huge council. It was in a town called Nicaea. And Nicaea is located in modern-day Turkey. And at the council, they were trying to answer this question. Who's Jesus? What is his identity? Was he really God in the flesh? Through whom everything was created? Or was he just a great human being? from whom you can learn a few lessons. And so at the council, Arius gets up and he starts explaining his teaching. He's trying to make his case, and so he's going on and on and on. He's a typical pastor, right? He's standing up front, and you see what happens is right in the middle of it, one of the bishops there stands up, walks all the way up to Arius. No one really knows what's going on at this point, but what this guy does is he reaches down, and he comes up with a booming uppercut. Literally lays Arius out cold. And so I don't know if you've heard about this, but the guy who did that, his name was Nicholas. Later on, he kind of became a saint. So people would call him Saint Nicholas. Abbreviated, they would call him Saint Nick. Or the more popular name would be Santa Claus. Yeah, that's literally the guy who punched Arius in the face. Before he was a jolly man in a red suit, he was a Greek bishop with a bit of a temper. And so he was arrested. Several days later, he apologized. It was totally out of character for him. In fact, he was much better known for a, sec- uh, for a habit of secret gift-giving, which is how he became Santa, right? Uh, but you see, the way more important thing at the Council of Nicaea Although that's pretty fun, right? Uh, But the way more important thing is the church came to a particular conclusion. Namely, they concluded that Arius was wrong. That if you read the scriptures honestly and you listen to the Spirit attentively, what you'll discern is this Jesus really is God. And so what they repeatedly referenced throughout the council was from John chapter 1. It's the reading we just had. And it says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. That's speaking of Christ. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He is God. And so at that council, they wrote what we call the Nicene Creed. A huge part of it is about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? He is God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And you see, that's just driving home the point. This Jesus is fully God. Not just a great human being, not just a really good teacher, not even just kind of God or part God, but fully God. So just to kind of put this out there, why does that matter? I want you to imagine, 
try to explain why it matters. Uh, I want you to imagine you have a really bad case of heart disease. Now, let's say you used to smoke for about 35 years. You do a lot of damage. You've also never eaten well or exercised or anything like that. On top of that, you have lived a really high-stress life. Your environment has been anything but calm. You go to work, it's full of stress. You go home, it's full of strife. And so you get to the point that your heart is in really bad shape. And in fact, it's gotten so bad that in order to survive, what your doctor tells you is you're going to need a heart transplant. You literally need a new heart. So you, re you reluctantly schedule it out. The day comes. You nervously drive to the hospital. You check into your room. Your heart is pounding, right? You're nervous about this. And after going through all of your pre-op, they wheel you into the room for surgery. And when you get in there, there are three people, all of whom seem very eager to give you this transplant. And so they introduce themselves. Uh, the first guy is someone named John. John is a hospital administrator. He works in accounting. He's pretty good at numbers. Second guy is George. George is a registered dietitian. Seems like a nice guy. Evidently, he can help you craft a better diet. The third guy is Jim. And by now, you're really hoping, dude, Jim better be my surgeon. <laughs> but no, Jim's the social worker. He's really good at connecting people to different resources after they come out of surgery. And so they introduce themselves, they begin to walk towards you with scalpels in hand, and before you can ask a single question, they say, hey, everything's going to be fine. You just put this mask on, start counting down backwards from 10. So let me ask you, how do you feel about that? Not good, right? But why? They're all good at their jobs. And so why does it matter that they're not really surgeons? Here's why. I think we kind of know this already. It's an easy illustration. Uh, it's because particular work requires a particular person. And so when the work you need is to have someone open you up and give you a new heart, that is not something that an accountant can do. No offense, accountants. Uh, it is not something a dietitian can do. It is not something a social worker can do. No, it's only something a surgeon can do. Again, particular work requires a particular person. So to circle back, why does it matter whether Jesus is really God? It matters because, again, particular work requires particular people. You see, the Bible's, Bible's diagnosis of us is that you and I have a bad heart. We've got a bad heart. And that's not to say that we're just all evil all the time. It's not saying that. But it is saying that something is not right. And more than just not right, that seems almost too light. I think the biblical view is the human heart is deeply unwell. And you see, what we need as a cure is not just another good teacher or another great human or even another spiritual figure. No, what we need is a savior. Meaning we need someone who can actually open us up and give us a new heart. And the thing is, the only person who can do that is God himself. And so the problem with Arius' teaching wasn't just that he misidentified Jesus. It was that in doing so, he took away the cure. 
You see, only God can heal the wounds that we have. No one else can do it. No one else can go back and redeem the mistakes we've made. No one else can come in and change the desires we have. No one else can break the bondages, assuage the guilt, cover the shame, remove the fear, clear the mind, purify the heart. No one else can do this, right? Which means only God can save us. And whereas Arius got it wrong, the good news coming out of the council of Nicaea was Jesus is God. He can save you. If you go all the way back to Genesis, this is going to seem like a big detour, Uh, but in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, it's the very first line of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that's kind of the introductory line, right? And it goes on to talk about this incredibly powerful God who is not just powerful, but also incredibly generous. He's creating life that he does not have to create. He's calling all of it very good. And so he's literally delighting in things that are really just the result of his own generosity and love. So what you get in Genesis 1 is this beautiful picture of how the creator intended to bless and be in harmony with his creation. What's remarkable is the juxtaposition of that with everything that then follows. You see, once Adam and Eve fall, everything is thrown off. The curse enters into the world. And so all of a sudden there is hiding from God. And there's shaming and blaming of each other and there is difficulty and dying and all these things that are so in contrast to what God originally intended. But again, just remember that first line. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So then go to today's reading, John 1.1, and what does it say? In the beginning. It's the same three words. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so what that is saying is it's the same God who created us in Genesis who has now come to recreate us in John. So what you'll see throughout the rest of John is Jesus is doing this very thing. He is reversing all the cursed outcomes of the fall. So when other people get blamed and shamed in John, think of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus steps in and he covers her with grace. He's reversing the curse. When other people are facing difficulty, think of the man born blind. Jesus steps in and he offers healing. He's reversing the curse. And even, even when people have died, think of Lazarus in the grave. Jesus steps in. Raises him back to life. Reversing the curse. He's doing it over and over again. But you see what happens is towards the end of the story he gets put up on a cross. And all of a sudden instead of reversing the curse, the curse is just falling on him. Now the thing is, if this were just a great human being getting crucified, it would seem like, I don't know, he had a pretty good run. But now everything he was about is getting destroyed. The curse is greater than human kindness, is one way to put it. And yet, if this is not just a human being on the cross, but God himself, then no. 
everything he's about is not getting destroyed. Rather, it is getting fulfilled. You see, what he is doing is he is taking all those cursed outcomes of the fall. All the blame we cast. All the shame we feel. All the sin we have. All the difficulty of this life. The fact that everything good somehow ends up dying. He's taking that on himself. And he is doing that because he is God, and by taking them on himself, he takes them off of us. So even though those things are still part of the world we live in, I'm not saying they're not, they are not part of the power over our lives. You see, when Christ was on the cross, that was God himself creating a new beginning for us. And so to the extent that we feel the weight of the curse, And I think to the extent that we are honest, we will feel the weight of the curse. And to the extent that we feel it, the call is to bring ourselves before the cross of Christ. He is fully God. He is fully capable of saving you. And he is full of love for you. That is his identity. The only question left is, does his, identif- does his identity define yours? Let's pray as our worship team comes forward. Father in heaven, you gave us the gift of Christ so that we could have a new beginning. That he would bear away our sin and shame and we would become a new creation. And so we thank you for this incredible gift. And yet at the same time, even as he has given himself fully to us, we know that we have not reciprocated that and given ourselves fully to him. And so, Father God, we just pray, assure us of the love of Christ, uh, that we can, in fact, entrust ourselves to him, knowing that it is not curse but blessing that he has for us. And so, Father, help us, even just the rest of this day, to be open and attentive to the operations of the great physician. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen.